Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week I speak with Gerger from The Unseasonal, plus an indie magazine fair in Italy and the memoir of Ari Shapiro. Enjoy the show. Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a magazine that I find beautiful and dreamy, The Unseasonal. Great to welcome back its founder, Gerger, back on The Stack, to talk about their new eternal issue, featuring the likes of American scriptwriter James V. Hartz from Bram Stoker's Dracula to the Volcano House designed by architect Harold J. Bissner. But let's hear from Gurgur now. So the Dian season is a very different title. So it's on the whole, of course, like still like this purpose-driven special projects magazine. And all the projects we are doing are of a big scale, like back in the days, what people just don't do anymore. Other publishers just cannot afford and either don't show a really a lot of interest doing these things anymore. And so we are doing like, you know, we're giving stories sometimes 20 pages, 30 pages, sometimes more, you know, 40 pages. And it's really like a lot of resources that go into every single research. We take so much time, so much effort, pay so much, I think like um, so, so much attention to every single detail that it's thoughtful stories and unique collaborations and some of the most creative and sought after personalities in the field that we cover and we sit down with. And often like again and again and again, so like we have RBC stories as in the new issue that makes us really, really unique, I, f- I feel. And it gives this really rare equality in times of fast fashion, social media, madness, and all of that. You've named issue four as the eternal issue. What does what does that mean to you? Yes. So I think everything what we are doing with the unseasonal is always kind of epic and we always have like work that is kind of iconic and like some of the best of the best and uh, really like award-winning photography. And you know, we always like felt like okay, our themes are also constantly evolving, getting bigger. And so Eternal felt suddenly like the right theme, right? I mean, it's not like that we just come up with a theme one day and say like, okay, that's it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It takes a long time to reprocess it. And it's just like, also I, for myself, you know, as a great director and editor-in-chief, like, I think like I I sleep over it a lot, you know? I walk with it a lot. (laughs) And at some point it's a certain feeling for an issue and it also needs to fit, of course, all the stories we had already planned, maybe, you know, the, the months before, because we always work on several issues in parallel and it just needs to fit everything and the feel of also like the time and if the time is right. So I think Eternal was just like reappealing to us because it has this immense feel of something that is not starting and ending. It's just basically like the the, the universe, you know, or um, I mean, it's like, there's nothing more timeless than that, of course, right? And I think for us, it meant to be quite, uh, I think to put the the whole idea of the unseasonal um, again on a different level and lift it up a little bit because we just said even bolder with all of this, like, okay, we are really timeless. 
And well, talking about timeless, someone that is timeless is Dracula in a way. I love the story with the screenwriter from Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I think is such a fantastic film, you know, the imagery. I mean, and again, it fits the seasonal so well, because for me, I think, I mean, the visuals of that film, I, I never forget about it. So how did this story came about? Are you also a fan of Bram Stoker's Dracula? Absolutely. I mean, I think we are all fans of nostalgia. I mean, that's what we are doing with Tin Season a lot, but like we always need to see, is there a reason to do it in the here now, you know, or is, is that the right context? Are people interested in that? And if it's really something that just fits the sensibility of people right now, we, with that, there was just clear, there was no question about it, you know, that this is something at the moment that, that comes back a lot and, and people would just really enjoy hearing more about that without even knowing. I think on the whole, I just wanted to maybe as a mention, uh, it's really something we believe strongly in that, you know, sometimes the readers and even Steve Jobs said that in the past, you know, famously that they might not know what they exactly want right now, right? Until they see it. And I think like that's how we work a lot. Like um, I, I, we, we felt like when, when this now came out, there was so much the right decision because people just love it. You know, they're, they're, they're crazy about it. To see more of unique material and interviews and know more of things that have never been out there about this project. And people grew up with it, you know, and I did. And a lot of other people I know did. And like, it's, it's just in, in our DNA in, in a way, right? And it inspired us back then. And it still inspires us today and makes us even, I would say, um, us a little bit like what we are today. And so I think sometimes people would just say, oh, it's, it was just another movie or it was just another project. And I think sometimes those movies and projects become actually such important pieces in what people are and, and what, what it means to people that I think that is like a very powerful thing. And that was exactly also like the, what, what, you know, what was triggering our feelings, you know, everyone's feelings on, on the teams. So we started to do a lot of research. Um, we at some point talked to, you know, um, James Wehart, who, who wrote the script. And then there became, you know, out of that, um, it became this huge, huge, huge project because there was just like we had the feeling there was so much material. There were so many interesting things, so many interesting stories. I mean, he got really close to Francis Ford Coppola and the family, and he was also telling us a lot about that. Now I feel like Jim and May, like we became friends and like, it, it's just like, it's, it's such an amazing thing to, to talk to them, you know, for such a long while and to develop such a project that is not just like really like a quick thing, you know, and it's just like being written in, in a day or in a week and that's it. And it comes out and no one cares anymore about it. We just like took so much time even to find image material that is super unique. Um, so for example, the image material, most of that we are running is you know, something that the studio, um, Columbia just like threw away at some point and someone bought it in different places who was like a super fan in a way. And then, you know, we got connected to that person and then we got at some point that material and we tried to scan it like in a really good way. And um, out of that, you know, it's, and then like, I mean, we tried to get the rights for it. It was not like that simple. And we, you know, it, it's like there, there was just, a lot that went into it. And we are very proud of what it became and, and people just love it. 
Yeah, well, it's a great story. I loved it because I really enjoyed the film as well. And remind our listeners as well, your connection with, you know, the celebrity world as well, because, you know, you've shot so many of them as well. And you're based in Los Angeles, which is, you know, makes it almost unavoidable, right, to, to be part of this world. But you cover in a very special way, I have to say. I mean, that goes back like a, a, a long, long time to, you know, when I was working for all the other publications and I always tried to work with just like the best publications because my own aesthetic as a photographer was as an, as an artist, like was very, way different to others, you know? So like it had obviously like an artistic quality. It was like a bit more upscale and like very, very unique and award-winning also. And so I think it was not always uh, easy anymore over the years to find always the right publications because it got more difficult for them, you know, with budgets and all that. And like they did, you know, they just did something that was easy and simple and quick. And then I worked like still for Condé Nast and Vogue and uh, Interview Magazine a lot back in the days. Also, at, at some point, I just, yeah, I, I got more and more connected, but like I was always just interested in people and personalities that were personalities for a reason because they were just really interesting and did something that was very powerful. And I think I was never, ever interested in the B-celebrities or Netflix stars. And I think I, I said that maybe even in the past. I say that all the time because I think I'm not the typical um, photographer in LA who is just connected in the world and it's just like I'm going after the celebrities. And I know many of those, you know, but like that never interested me. There must be always more, something deeper in a person. And so I also said no to a lot of things and just left a lot on the table, just if it doesn't feel right. Because uh, what we also want to do, and I mean, that was obviously my idea, also to have an impact in, in the world, you know, and not to just produce nice work and, and visually appealing pictures, but also like really to inspire people and um, to change things and, and maybe to rethink what, what the world means to us, what can it mean to us, and like, how can we make it a better place, right? Beautiful pictures, they have this power, right, to inspire people in a positive way and that they hopefully also like get the right ideas in a way. But of course, I'm also fine like that people just see the magazine and it's like just uh, it takes them away. It's like like an island feel of like a holiday feel. And, you know, it's just beautiful. And, you know, always it has substance, but it's never too deep. It's never depressing. Right. I think that's also important nowadays because news and outlets like they are, they can be very depressing. And I think it's it's that too. It's really a mix. So like when I see the celebrities or like I know them in person as a backstage or on set or when we meet uh, us for interviews or for, for any projects, right? I think I don't see necessarily the celebrity in front of me. I see really just like a human being that is just like very interesting and has achieved just something really, really amazing. Thank you very much, Gregor, there. And the eternal issue of the unseasonal is out now. You are listening to The Stack on Monaco Radio and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The US radio journalist Ari Shapiro is known to millions of Americans as the longtime host of NPR's daily afternoon radio news program, All Things Considered. But before he took the presenter's chair in 2015, he spent more than a decade reporting for the National Public Radio Broadcaster, in roles that have included White House correspondent during the Obama years and as international correspondent based in London, a role which took him around the world. Now he has collated many of these stories in a new memoir, The Best Strangers in the World, stories from a life spent listening. 
Monaco's Thomas Lewis spoke to him for New York, and he began by asking him how the chronicle of his life in journalism begins. I was born in Fargo, North Dakota, and my family lived there till I was eight, and my older brother and I were the only two Jewish kids in our elementary school. And so he had the idea that <laughs> he in the fourth grade and I in the first grade should each go from classroom to classroom at our elementary school with a menorah and a dreidel every December, talking to these kids about what Hanukkah is and what Judaism is. And that was kind of my first experience, not just public speaking and presenting to an audience, but trying to make the unfamiliar seem a little more relatable. And then if you fast forward, when I was eight, my family moved to Portland, Oregon. And at the age of 16, I decided to come out. And I was the only out gay student at my high school. And so once again, I was in this position of trying to make the foreign seem a little bit less exotic, a little bit less strange, and trying to put a human face on something that might have been abstract to my classmates. And what I've realized as a journalist is that I can perform those same acts of translation. I can be that kind of an ambassador to groups that I have no personal connection to beyond my journalistic interest and curiosity about them. So I can go to a Bikers for Trump rally, or I can go to a coastal town in Senegal that is sinking under rising seas, and I can talk to people in those places and get real with them and share their stories with listeners who might otherwise view those people as fundamentally different and foreign. And hopefully, ideally, when I'm doing my best work, I can help people appreciate how much we share, how much we have in common. And when you approached putting pen to paper, Ari, for your memoir, which is your first book, I believe, how did you begin to distill those stories? What was the approach that you wanted to take and what you wanted your memoir to be? Well, there's a big picture answer and a small picture answer. The small picture answer is I've kept a diary for many years, and so that was a really helpful reference in the writing process where I was able to actually drill down and get details that might have blurred in the haze of time. But the big picture answer is that often in my life, friends have asked how I stay optimistic in the face of all the terrible things that happen in the world, especially given that I cover many of those terrible things as a journalist. You know, I talk to people often on the worst days of their lives, whether it's a natural disaster or a mass shooting or a war. And I am optimistic and I do feel good about humanity and human nature. And the answer that I've often given to friends is specifically about individuals who I've met in the course of my reporting, in the course of my journalism. And so part of the impetus for this book and the way that I thought of this memoir was almost as an answer to that question writ large of how do I stay optimistic? And the adjustment I had to make is that as a journalist, I'm always pointing the microphone at someone else. And as a memoirist, I'm centering myself in these stories. And that didn't come naturally. So often I would write a first draft of the chapter that would sort of be this happened and that happened and another thing happened. And then I would set aside that draft for a while and then I would come back and I would say, oh, this is actually about identity or about objectivity or about democracy. And then I would go back through the chapter and sort of rewrite it, putting more of myself into it and trying to tease out more of those bigger themes and ideas. It's part of what I love about our job as journalists is that we have these interactions with people that might only last five or 15 minutes or an hour, and we may never see them again in our entire lives. And yet, those 15 minutes, that brief encounter with a stranger can be real and vulnerable and personal. Those people may share stories with us that they don't often share with others. And that act of listening 
that act of being present and allowing someone to say what they feel and share their experiences and know that they will be listened to and heard can be really profound. And I think from the outside, the work of journalism can sometimes appear transactional. Like you swoop in, you get the quote, you put it on the air and you make a paycheck. But in my experience, people often want to tell their stories and we can play not just a positive role, but almost like a healing role by showing up and saying like, I am here to listen to your story. And there are such powerful forces right now that tell us to bunker ourselves in our own bubbles, whether that's social media algorithms or well-funded political machines or even corporations that want us to see ourselves as a Coke drinker rather than a Pepsi drinker. But I think the art of listening is something that we are all able to practice. It's not like parkour where you have to study it, otherwise you will twist your ankle and fall, you know? And so returning to those base actions that are like evolutionarily ingrained in us of listening and telling stories, I think can actually have a profound impact. And you touched on this a little earlier, Ari, but the idea of being something of an outsider as a journalist covering a story that you've been tasked to report on, is there something about that coming in from the outside with a a pair of fresh, objective eyes that you think gives a journalist an advantage in some way? I wrestle with this in the book because many stories I tell, I come to as an outsider. You know, when I'm in Zimbabwe, I'm maybe the only white, my team and I are the only white people at a presidential rally. We really stick out. We haven't had experience reporting in Zimbabwe. And we are coming to it with fresh eyes, asking perhaps naive questions and sharing that with an audience that likely has also never been to Zimbabwe. But on the flip side of that, when I covered the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016, I realized that my history and my experience shaped the way I was telling those stories in a way that added value to that storytelling. And that was also important. I had not only been to gay bars throughout my life, but I had been to gay bars specifically in Orlando. And I had many colleagues who were covering the Pulse nightclub shooting and doing a brilliant job of it, but their storytelling was different. And I think mine had added depth and layers because of my experience. So being an outsider can be beneficial. Being an insider can also be beneficial. And one of the points that I try to make in the book is that there is no such thing as a lack of identity. You know, I walk through the world not only as somebody who's gay and Jewish, but also as somebody who's male, as somebody who's American, as somebody who's white. All of those things come to bear on my storytelling. And so the idea of the view from nowhere, I think, which is you know a common phrase in journalism that's been around for a long time, I think is a fallacy that never actually existed. And that's not to say that objectivity is not a worthy goal. I do think objectivity is important, but I also think we have to acknowledge, recognize, and wrestle with the role that our own experience, history, and identity plays. And finally, Ari, you have been a, a familiar, trusted voice for, for millions of listeners in the US for more than two decades by this stage, I think, Ari. How has the environment for you as a journalist changed in that time, would you say? There are so many forces pulling and tearing at the media. And in the more than 20 years that I've been a journalist, things have changed so dramatically. And I think upheaval is almost a, a, a constant Of the various things that are dramatically changing in media, honestly, the thing that worries me the most is the sort of shrinkage, implosion, disappearance of local news reporting in cities and states across the United States. 
I think there are state houses and legislatures where the only full-time reporter doing the work of covering that place is the person from the public radio station. And there are cities that used to have robust newspapers or two newspapers that would do investigative reporting that now are online only or only publish a couple of times a week and are mostly doing superficial stories because people are not willing to pay for their news coverage and there's not a business model that has been successful. So yes, I worry about the blurring of opinion and news reporting. I worry about a lot of things, but because I am an optimistic person, the other really positive trend that I see is that back in the old days when there were sort of three stentorian white male voices who everybody trusted, there were so many people who were kept out by the gatekeepers. And I think now the barriers of entry have been lowered in such a way that we are able to hear voices that previously were not heard and were suppressed. And that, I think, enriches and adds to our understanding of the world because those three men who were deciding what should be on the news every day also came from a particular perspective. And now we have a universe of perspectives that I find really enriching and stimulating and valuable. And, you know, they add to what I bring to the daily editorial meeting at All Things Considered every morning when we decide what should be on the show that day. I really value the range of voices that we have available to us. Eric Shapiro there, host of NPR's All Things Considered, speaking to Monaco's Thomas Lewis. In Ari's memoir, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening, is published in the U.S. by HarperCollins and is available now. And this week we also head to Mag to Mag, Italy's first festival dedicated to independent magazines, which took place in Bologna last weekend. Monaco's Julia Webster Ayuso was there and spoke to Dario Gaspari, co-founder of Mag to Mag, as well as Frabs, an online platform dedicated to selling and promoting independent magazines based in Forli. Mag to Mag is the first event in Italy just dedicated to independent magazines. So Italy is full of festivals about books and printing, really full of these kind of events, but it didn't exist before any event, any festival specific for magazines. This is what we created. The idea starts from what we see all around the world. We, we travel a lot for flaps, so we get inspiration all over the world. In Europe, we see a lot of festivals and we saw that this event was completely lacking in Italy. We, as Fraps, we promote culture of uh, niche independent magazines and we decided to bring this type of event also here. So you mentioned Fraps, which is this platform for independent magazines that you founded four years ago. Could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Fraps is a platform for independent magazines. It means that what we do is to build the culture of magazines to be the culture of the new niche and independent magazines. So we are letting go all the old style publishing and uh, periodic publishing, and we try to support. So our work is not just selling. Selling, of course, is the main economic part and financial part of our job, but our job is making the culture and help all the community of independent magazines to grow. We do it by selling magazines, selecting new one, 
We support magazines. We have this course called How to Make a Magazine. We support new publishers making their business plan, explaining them how to realize a good magazine today, how to sell a magazine in the right way. We also take many lessons at universities, graphic institutes to explain what is today an independent and niche magazine. Together with this, we really participate to a lot of events about printing in Italy to make magazines, to find new people that want to meet magazines. So what we do in Italy, we are still very connected to old style magazines and what we try to do is to make people discover these kind of new magazines. Seems very strange, but many times when people see our magazines say, oh, what is this? They don't understand the difference from a book, newspaper from the 90s of the last century and they don't understand what is the products that we select. And this is our main job. And so this is the first ever edition of mag to mag here in Bologna. You're holding talks on um, the future of print and how to sell a magazine, as you mentioned. So what were some of the highlights? Okay, yesterday we had a live edition of how to make a magazine. So new and wannabe publishers in independent magazines they had six hours of lesson with Agnese Porto from RWM magazine, Davide Mottes, which is art director of H Farm and Mize magazine, and from me about the business part of how to make a magazine. And we taught them how to build a magazine. And we also get into all those things that are covered by dreams. I mean, sometimes to make a magazine today, you do it because you want to communicate something. But behind it, behind your dream to communicate something through paper, there is money, there is time, there is organization, and we try to support people in all this part. The biggest event we had yesterday in the morning with uh, Stefano Cipolla, which is art director of uh, L'Espresso magazine, a major newspaper in, in Italy, and Francesco Ciapponi. They were doing this really crazy talk about experimental design, which was very appreciated. Then we had a talk about fashion, a talk about uh, distribution and many other meetings. We were really, really surprised about participation. So uh, we opened an event bright. We had 1,500 subscribers, but actually the municipality told us at least the double of these people came here. We had continuous flow of people during the, the day. It was really exciting for a first edition. And so you've invited quite a few international magazines to come and participate in this event, but the majority are Italian. Could you tell us a little bit about the state of independent magazines in Italy? I should be very, very clear with you. This is a small, very incredibly small niche of a market. People don't know these magazines. This is our job to help them get discovered. Yeah, seems stupid. Maybe if you go to Milan, yes, somebody knows what is an independent or niche magazine. But as you get out of this city in Italy, even in Rome, in Bologna, where we are, in Florence, in Venice, they don't know independent magazines. So still is a very, very small and embryonal uh, level. We try to make connections. So the topic of this first edition of mag to mag was connection. What we do, we have printers here. One of the main supporters was a printer, a distributor, together with the, the municipality. We had many shops coming here to discover magazines. That was really exciting. We wanted shops that sell magazines like us to come here and discover these incredible products. What I want to say, 
magazines are for young people. Our public is from 18 to 30 years old. They are studying or they just started working and these young people that were born without any paper magazine are really, really interested in paper today. So that's a really exciting sector, very young in Italy, but still has to be discovered. And this is what our uh, job is to do every day. And finally, what are some of your favorite Italian titles? Wow, that, that's the most tricky question, of course. Uh, from the magazines that are uh, here, of course, I could cite the first one, it's not Italian, it's Meantime magazine from Singapore. It's a very incredible artisanal, let's say, magazine from um, Fang, is the author, that tells the story of Singapore through incredible personal stories about love, about the ghosts in, in, uh, in Singapore. About the Italian magazines, uh, I should say the one that uh, I love more is Orlando magazine. It really has an incredible aesthetic. It's such a good product as a, as a magazine. We love it. We were born together in the same year as a project. Also, Orlando was born in uh, 2019. We know um, Antonella Pescetto, which is the, the founder of the magazine, and really is building an incredible project about art and culture in Italy. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and monaco.com. Before we go, a little song for you. The Bangles, Eternal Flame. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Hey.